Scripture is this morning will be from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 39. Acts chapter 2, 36 through 39. Therefore, let all the house of Israel, Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord God will call. Good evening, church. We are, at the conclusion of tonight, be halfway through our Sunday evening series that we're working our way through entitled Receive. And really the point of this entire series of sermons that we're putting together, eight in all, is that we might remind ourselves constantly that the posture of the believer in Christ, the posture of the Christian, is to place him or herself before God in a receptive manner. All of life as a believer in Jesus Christ is most certainly a gift from God. Every good and perfect thing comes down from the Father of lights, through whom there is no variation, James said. Everything we have from Him is gift. This whole thing that He has set up for us to operate in and live in and see the world in is a gift. And it's one to be received. And so we're talking about posturing ourselves to be receptive to God. And so there also has been an intentional progression through the subjects that we're talking about. I know sometimes as we get up on Sunday nights and you hear Wednesday classes and Sunday classes and Sunday morning sermons and then Sunday night there's another sermon. There's a lot of uh, different um, subjects being talked about. On Sunday nights when we're talking about being receptive or the concept of receiving, we tried to put together a logical progression of the lesson. So we started out from the very beginning preparing or cultivating ourselves to be receptive people from the sermon of the sower and the seed. We talked about being willing to receive forgiveness. Step one, receiving forgiveness. And when we receive forgiveness, we become forgiving people. Step number two was receiving not just justification of forgiveness, but step two was receiving reconciliation. As Paul said that our gospel from God is more than just let off the hook, pardoned, but actually relationship reconciled with Him. That He is our Father and we are His children. So we can receive that. Tonight we're going to talk about receiving the Holy Spirit that moves us in out of the realm of just justification and relationship and into adoption as God's children. We'll see how this fits all together. And as the series will continue, we'll talk next week about receiving love, receiving grace, receiving discipline. And then finally, when we're people like this, we are able then to be received by other people. Hopefully the Lord will do that work with among us. Um, this series of sermons really reminds me of some of the best advice I'd ever heard about uh, preaching and being in ministry. It says that the work of a gospel preacher, the work of somebody who preaches to God's people, is to constantly remind them of who they are in Jesus Christ 
and what is currently true about them and do that over and over and over. You know, that's basically what the New Testament after the book of Acts really is. Those are letters written to current believers, to churches made up of Christians who are gathered together and the writers of those letters are writing to Christians to constantly tell them what is currently true about them. And so our responsibility is to continue to remind you that you are a forgiven and a reconciled and a filled with the Spirit type of people. And so we want to continue to cultivate that among us. And so the point of this series is not just these once were true, but are you receiving the fullest measure to live an abundant life? And God's Word gives us evidence to see if we really are. Tonight our subject is no different, receiving the Holy Spirit. Um, What I want to do is answer three really simple questions for you because this topic can be a little bit uh, mystical, a little bit um, concerning sometimes. So I want to answer three really simple questions for you Um, and work our way through that. And as I say that, I want to tell you that uh, anybody that would like to have my notes, uh, I'm more than happy to make copies or to email them to you. Um, Even further, I'm more than happy to uh, follow up and study with you. Tonight, for uh, the purpose of answering these questions, we're going to have to do some systematic theology, which is survey through some scriptures. Moving a little bit quicker and tying some things together. I don't typically like to preach that way. I like to preach, it's called inductively, from one passage and really unearth some truth there. But to make some sense of some things, we're going to have to march our way through some scripture. I'll try my very best to make it all come together. So here's the three questions we're going to ask. Number one, who is the Holy Spirit? Seems like a good question to ask. Who is the Holy Spirit? Number two, how do you receive Him? And number three, what then does he do? Everybody on board? Who is he? How do you receive him? And then what does he do to the believer that has received him? Let's start from the very beginning. Who is the Holy Spirit? And you'll notice in the way that I worded that question, um, my question makes some assumptions that not all people are willing to make by the way that I worded that question. You notice I said, who is the Holy Spirit? I didn't say, what is the Holy Spirit? I'm assuming that he is actually a he and not just a what. There are some people that believe that the Holy Spirit is this vague sort of cosmic force that just kind of like moves things. Um, Maybe he's just a warm or fuzzy feeling that people have. He's the Holy Spirit. Um, I can say that for me, there is a sense of mystery about the Holy Spirit. As somebody who has, um, I, I know for the first about 20 years of my life, I didn't study the Bible at all, um, if I'm being honest. And about the last 10 years of my life, I've tried to, to study into things and think deeply about things. And I've studied about the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you that even the Holy Spirit, to me, feels there's a deep sense of mystery about Him. And I can even tell you that there's a sense of distrust. Now hear me. That is not a distrust with God. I feel a sense of distrust sometimes with myself about what the Holy Spirit is and who He is and what He does and how He works. Uh, I think a lot of that fear is cultivated because of the large Pentecostal movement that's happened in our culture where we've developed a, a, a pretty significant fear when people raise those statements like that man or that woman is filled with the Spirit of God. And so we get this kind of twinge like, oof, 
I, I don't know if you do. I'll just answer for me. Like, okay, what does that mean? What did the Spirit tell you to do? And the Spirit led me here. And so that kind of language, not with God, but with me, sometimes can make me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, so to ask this question then, who is He? As we move on to this portion, again, like I said, we'll be a little bit systematic. I, as you can tell by the way I worded the question, I do believe the Holy Spirit is the third distinct person of the Trinity. The third distinct person of the Trinity. I believe that He has all the attributes that are ascribed also to both the Father and the Son in the Bible. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all three are given attributes that are the same and ascribed to them individually and specifically throughout the Scriptures. That's really why Orthodox teaching came to the word Trinity, even though you don't find that word in the Bible. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but it's describing how the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are three distinct, yet as the Hebrews said, the Lord our God is one. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about his attributes. Here's where we're going to go a little bit faster, but I'll give you the scripture quotes as we're going. First of all, his attributes, Hebrews 9.14 says that he is, the Spirit is eternal. Sounds a lot like God the Father and the Son. He's eternal. Um, in Psalm 139, verse 7, David said the Spirit of God is all-present or omnipresent. He's everywhere. Where can I go from your Spirit? Um, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 describes the Spirit as being all-knowing, knowing the deep things of God the Spirit knows. And so He's omniscient or He knows all things. Those three main things there, eternal, all-present, all-knowing, describe the Father, the Son, and ultimately here as you see, the Spirit. There's the aspects of Him also that make Him not just a cosmic force, but a distinct person. The Spirit, Romans 15.30 says that He has emotion. He has emotion there, Romans 15.30. Um, he has His own will. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.11 says that the Spirit distributed the miraculous gifts to the church in Corinth and elsewhere according to His will. He was the one distributing those things. How He saw fit to bless the body. And as I said before, He has an intellect. He thinks, 1 Corinthians 2.11 as quoted already. Um, the last part of what his nature really is made up of, I want to reveal a couple of scriptures for you. His nature is full of truth. John, 13, John 16 verse 13 describes him as the spirit of truth. He's full of truth. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Um, he's full of life. Romans chapter 8 verse 2 says the spirit of life gives life to us. Um, Hebrews 10.29 says that He's full of grace. And then Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says that He's the Spirit of holiness. So His nature is of truth and life, grace and holiness. Sounds a lot like the way that we describe God our Father and the Son Jesus Christ. Very similar. So that's why I believe that the Holy Spirit is the third distinct member of the Trinity that make up the one God that we serve, that we obey, that we live for, and that we follow. So um, with that being said, that, that's again my um, understanding from Scripture, who the Holy Spirit really is. The second question is then, how do we receive Him? You notice what um, Tanner read for us tonight was the Scripture that if you have a background or history in the churches of Christ, 
you probably didn't need Tanner to read that verse for you, did you? When he showed up in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and he said, Repent therefore and let every one of you, you guys want to do it? Be baptized in the name of Jesus, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? We're comfortable with that verse. We've heard it a lot. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, as we know so well, we've talked about this, was the very first answer in the kingdom of God to a broken and lost people seeking redemption in Jesus. You know, people throughout all of history have sought redemption with God. They've even made up gods because of their guilty conscience to seek redemption with a God that wasn't the God. That's what humans do. We do that. We seek redemption. We seek redeemable qualities in ourselves. We want to be valued and loved and bought back and redeemed. And so we do that. And so here's the first time through Jesus Christ that a group of people are actually seeking this thing called redemption. And they come to Peter after hearing this gospel sermon that Jesus Christ was the eternal before, and he's the savior of the world. He was the lineage of David, the king. And now he's raised up and he's seated at the right hand of God. And they're understanding him now as Lord and Christ. They say, okay, what do we do? Now what do we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, this last point rarely gets airtime on our wavelengths, on our stations. Because the point that we oftentimes are, are pigeonholed into having to co- have a conversation about is the procedure that they went through. The repent and be baptized. And that is so vital. We've got to understand this, how sacred that is. But you see, the repent and be baptized so that sins could be forgiven brought the gift of the Holy Spirit so that they could receive. The gift of receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was not forgiveness, but the Holy Spirit. Pardon me. The gift received at Pentecost was the Holy Spirit. It stand, sin stands in the way of God dwelling with His people. Prophecy all the way from old, when man sinned, it separated them from God. And so when Peter was answering, answering these people about their sin, he said, repentance and baptism will unite you with Christ, will wash away your sins, but an empty vessel is never what God desired. A pardoned and forgiven people that He has nothing to do with is not God's intention. But wiping away for one time for all, as Hebrews would say, making us perfect, was the intention of God to have the vessel be clean that He might fill it. That He might be reunited with His people. That's redemption. That's reconciliation. And so He says the repentance and baptism was for forgiveness so that we could receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul would say it this way. This is the mystery now revealed. Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians 1. That's the mystery being opened up now to this whole new world of Christianity. Say, here's the mystery being revealed. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. This is what makes baptism... And what I love about our fellowship so much is that we have we have anchored down on these truths to be so beautiful. This is what makes baptism so sacred. So when you get chastised for this, don't back off of this. But this is what makes it so sacred is that baptism unites us with Christ. 
It's there that the old self dies and the new self is born or regenerated and brought back to life. But here's the deal about baptism. You know, as we kind of talked about it over and over, and we've had this in our, in our lineage for about 200 years now, 250 solid years, it can become no better than just the baptism of John, a ceremonial washing for forgiveness. And even worse, a priestly washing just to enter into our church. If that's all baptism is for you, you're missing the baptism of Jesus Christ. Because a ceremonial washing is not really what God was after. He had that already. In Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul showed up in Ephesus there. He was talking to the believers and he they, they was meeting with them. And they said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? And, and they said, we've never heard of that. And he asked them what they were baptized into. He said, we were baptized into John. They had ceremonially been washed for the forgiveness of their sins. But under John's baptism in they had not even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so at that moment, they were re-baptized into Jesus Christ. The other thing you got to know about baptism is that, and uh, receiving the Holy Spirit, is that this is not something, the Holy Spirit, that you can merit or earn. Meaning, when you become good enough for God, then He'll finally let His Spirit be with you. You see, um, Acts chapter 8 tells a story about Simon who uh, had a lot of money. He was into sorcery and magic work and, and he was there and Philip the evangelist was teaching and preaching and he saw some people with the Holy Spirit and he went to them and he said, hey, how much money does it cost? C- can I buy this Holy Spirit? He was wanting to fork out some money so that he could get the Holy Spirit and Peter said, let your money perish with you. You have neither part nor portion in this matter at all. You don't understand. And then we go to Galatians chapter 3, if you'd like to read this, you can, um, where Paul said this to the Galatian believers who are now going back into Judaism to try to merit their relationship with God, to say, look what I've done. He says this in chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, ignorant people, listen, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? That seemed to be a popular question for Paul when he showed up to meet believers. Did you receive the Spirit? Acts chapter 19, Galatians chapter 3. And he says, did you receive it by works of the law or by hearing with faith, with trust, with obedience? You see, the reception of the Holy Spirit is not a matter of ceremony, nor is it a matter of merit. It's a matter of surrender and submission. It's a matter of humble awareness of your need of God and commitment to be ready to follow. It's a matter of repentance and turning to God and depending on Him. You see, there's nothing unique about receiving the Holy Spirit that you have not heard before about the process of salvation. You've heard these messages before about ceremonial washings, not forgiving sins, and and meriting yourself is not salvation. You've heard these messages before. There's nothing unique about like a special caveat about the Holy Spirit. So what we've got to do now is question number three is make sense of what does he do? Because Peter has said it's true. Paul has shown us that believers who come by faith and obedience to God 
seeking through humility the redemption and recovery of their souls, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we have to ask the question, then, what does he do? Um, the most condensed place, so I want to encourage you to go to this place and read it. The most condensed place in all the Scripture that has teachings about what the Holy Spirit does and what happens uh, with Him happens in the upper room when Jesus explains a lot to His apostles. John chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, uh, you could really finish with chapter 16 or if you want, move into chapter 17 and listen to the prayer of Jesus. I believe, and this is my opinion um, from studying after John 17 forward about the Holy Spirit, I believe that every teaching about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament after John 17 can find roots in the upper room with what Jesus really begins to teach there. His work is further explained in detail throughout the rest of the New Testament, but really in John chapter 13, 14, and 15, and 16 is where you see this come to life. John says in chapter 13 that Jesus is about to leave His disciples or His apostles, but He has loved them to the end, or He has loved them to the uttermost. His, his love is on the forefront of John's mind when he's retelling the story about the upper room. And so what's on the mind of Jesus is not his sermon outline, is not his cliff notes about what he needs to tell them. What's on his mind is how much he has loved his apostles and loved them to the end. And he wants us to make sure that we know how much he has loved them. And as he works to calm their fears and set their minds right for what lies ahead, his time with them is just full of promises in that upper room scene. He promises things like peace, Fullness of peace, my peace. Things like joy, you'll have fullness of joy. He promises fruitful lives. He says, if you abide in me, you'll abound in fruit. But he also promises difficulty, trials, and suffering. And in light of these promises, he commands them one thing. He says, you need to love me enough to trust me. Love me enough to trust me. It's going to get hard, but trust me. I'm in the process of making all things new. That's what I'm doing. And you're in on it. Love me enough to trust me. Now what's interesting about this is these guys love Jesus. You can see it, except for you know Judas, the, the son of perdition. These guys loved him. But even when Jesus was right there with them, walking around with them, in the same boat with them, looking at them, they struggled to trust Him at His Word, even in those moments. They failed to align themselves at times with His thoughts and His passions and His teachings. They just There was a mishap there. And so now He's going to leave them, and in leaving them, He's still asking them, hey, love me enough to trust me 100%. Just trust me. How's this going to go? Like, while he's there, they struggle with trusting him. It's comforting to me because if there's something that I think we all share together, speak for myself, that trusting God, trusting Christ, trusting the words that he has said on how to live and how to follow him in times of difficulty is hard. It's really hard. Because there are so many times that there are things whispered to us that our way is better. We know what's right. And if we could just do what we think we ought to do, boy, we could just fix this right now. And trusting Him when things are hard is difficult. But He says, trust me. 
And so he's leaving. And the question then is, how are they going to do this? Joy and peace and endurance, love, selfless service. How are they going to do all this in the midst of some of the most difficult times of their life? Almost all of them were martyred because they believed in Jesus. How are they going to do this? Well, there's one promise that is woven through the entire conversation. And that's the promise of the coming gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I will send you a helper. I will send you a helper. Over and over he says that in this text. Chapter 14, verse 16, he promises the Spirit will be the presence forever. He says, I'm not going to leave you orphans. He's the presence with you. Chapter 14, verse 27, where he says, my peace I give you. Verse 25 and 26, the, the, the peace is coming off the fact that he's giving them the Holy Spirit. In chapter 16, this is a place that um, I would encourage you to read with me. You'll see probably the most condensed version of what his work really is. Chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Here's really where the work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is revealed. He says this in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will. Stop there for a moment. Jesus is going to clarify succinctly what the Holy Spirit is going to do. If He comes, when He comes, pardon me, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Do you see what He's going to do? When Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, He's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And for the longest time when I would study this passage, I would read this, this is what happened to me. I started to read this and think, yeah, the Holy Spirit does this to me all the time. Because I'm always aware of how sinful I am. I just feel that. And I'm never righteous enough. And He's convicting me of my lack of righteousness. And then He's there to remind me of the judgment. So He's kind of like the fire underneath my pants that's kind of making me keep going. That's what He does. But do you know how horribly wrong I misread that Scripture? That's wrong. That's wrong. Listen carefully. There are three audiences. Three audiences for those three ministries. How did I miss this? It's in the next verse, the next sentence. But I missed it. Listen to what he says. Now concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Who's getting the message of sin? Who gets conviction of sin? Those that do not believe. Message one, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. What is Jesus doing next to the Father? Well, John's going to tell us in his letter, he says, when he goes back to the Father in chapter 2, 1 and 2, he says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is up there saying, he's one of mine. And so when You're being convicted of righteousness. What he's teaching here is when Jesus is at the right hand of God saying he's one of mine, he's convincing you of not your own personal without him righteousness, how good you are or how not good you are, but of the righteousness that is gifted to you by Jesus Christ that Paul would beg for when he says, not having my own righteousness, but that which is from him. That's what he does. You know, the word uh, for Holy Spirit in this text is called paraclete. Para from the word parable, which means alongside. Cleat meaning to walk. 
The word Holy Spirit means to walk along beside. And there's one other time in the entire New Testament that word is used. Not talking about the Holy Spirit. Talking about what Jesus Christ does at the right hand of God in 1 John 2. He's a paraclete for you with God as the Holy Spirit is with you for God. There's a third audience though. So the world because of their sin the believer because of the righteousness imputed because of Jesus Christ. And the last part, verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. What's the message of the judgment the Holy Spirit is singing? Satan, you have lost. You are judged. You are condemned. That prophecy, the pre-evangelion, I said that wrong, but Genesis 3.15, the first gospel message, when God promised that, that Satan would bruise the heel of his son, but he would strike the crushing blow to his head, that's what he's saying here. That the Holy Spirit, his message to Satan is, you have not won and you will not win. You have been judged. And so the last thing the Holy Spirit here does, in verse 13 and 14, is this. <clears throat> when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So listen carefully. I don't know if you ever get much exposure to people that um, are passionate about being a Holy Spirit church a Holy Spirit-inspired people. Um, there are times that I hear this as I, as I allow myself to see what's going on in the religious world outside of our fellowship just to have our bearings. But I hear so often people wanting to be Holy Spirit-inspired and Holy Spirit-filled and being a Holy Spirit church. What is the message of the Holy Spirit? Who does He scream about? Himself? No. Jesus Christ. And so John would say this in 1 John 4. Here's how you know God is in you and you are in God if you confess Jesus Christ. This has nothing to do with screaming about how filled you are with the Holy Spirit. You'll know you have the Holy Spirit if you say, Jesus Christ is Lord, Savior, Master of my life. That's what it is. That's His ministry. He teaches us that. Let me give you really practical. I'm sorry if I go a little bit long, but we don't get a lot of teaching in our fellowship about the Holy Spirit. I didn't grow up with it very much. For the individual, what the Holy Spirit does is this. He gives birth to you at the very beginning. John 3, born of the water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Number two, He leads you in giving glory to Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, like I said. Number three, He seals your salvation. He seals it. Ephesians 1 says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, the deposit of our possession, meaning that God has put His down payment on us with the Holy Spirit, and He seals that. Now, the way that that salvation is sealed is not a, just a reminder to God, like, okay, where did I put my uh, seal? Yeah, you and you, come on, I, I forgot, which one are you? That's not, what, that's not the sealing that He does. The seal is the reminder of ownership, not just to God, but to us. See, Romans 5.5 5 says that it's the Holy Spirit that pours God's love into our hearts. 
That seals that, that reminds us of that. Romans 8, 9 through 17 says it's the Holy Spirit that bears witness, that, that tells our spirit that we are children of God. It's sealing that constantly for us. That's what He does. And the, and the fourth thing for you, the Holy Spirit leads us in sanctification. If you're tired of walking in the desires of your flesh, Paul would tell us in Galatians chapter 5, this is a text you've got to study. We don't have time tonight. There's four verbs there about the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, follow, I can't remember the fourth one, maybe follow the Spirit. And he says, when you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. He leads you away from sin and into righteousness. The way that He leads us and guides us and directs us in accomplishing this work is through probably the most massive task the Holy Spirit ever took on. And that was the authorship and collection of the book that's sitting on your lap tonight. The Scripture. You see, uh, Peter would say that no prophecy was produced by the will of men, but men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Timothy would t- or Paul would tell Timothy that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And I believe that because all the, the books in the Bible that are in our canon, um, came, they didn't become a book until after they were done writing them. I believe absolutely that the Holy Spirit was involved, was massively working together to give us this completed Word of God. And so, when Paul here is telling the Ephesian believers this scripture here, when he's telling the Ephesian believers about how to stand strong in their spiritual battles, he gave them armor. How to fight spiritually, he gave them armor. And the very last piece of armor, it has a weird ring to it. He says the last piece was the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. I believe the Word of God is the sword the Spirit uses not just to fight outside of us to get rid of Satan, but he's the sword that he uses to convict, to cut out, to bring us to holiness, to conform us. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It actually has the ability to divide or discern between your thoughts and your intentions. You actually don't possess the ability to be objective about yourself without the Word of God. And so the Word of God is the most powerful tool the Holy Spirit has to lead us in sanctification. You can't separate those things. Practically, here's what to walk away with tonight. See the Holy Spirit as a hymn and see Him as a gift and appreciate that if you're a believer, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Number two, call on God in prayer to use the Holy Spirit in your life the way that He promised to use Him confirming your relationship with Him through love and sonship or daughtership constantly and leading you away from sin. Ask Him to do that. And number three, as the Bible tells us, don't quench the Spirit, don't grieve the Spirit, but empower the Spirit with His sword to work in your life. You can't separate them. You can't say, I have the Holy Spirit and not give Him a sword. You can't have a sword and not have the Spirit because there are a lot of people that have the sword but have no Spirit and all they do is cut people. But you've got to have both working together. 
And I believe we'll receive the Holy Spirit. God will lead us to the adoption that He wants us to have, the children, being His children conformed to the image that He wants us to be conformed. Thank you very much for your patience tonight. I really appreciate it. I hope that you learned something. And if there are more things that you would like to learn, I love to talk about this, and I would love to talk about it with you. Um, but tonight is a, night that, a time that we make an opportunity for people who need to um, make their lives right with God, to maybe come and be receptive of Him. And so we're going to sing a song as Clay leads us. And if tonight is a night that you need to be receptive of God, of the gospel, let's do that as we stand and sing.